Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he is an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was standing around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Here are my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We're in our next section in the, in the story so far, and uh, Nicole's just read from Mark 3, starting at verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Um, and, and so what we're going to see today, as, as we go through this passage, is opposition to, to Jesus. And um, I think it's fair to say over the last few weeks, as we've been looking into the Gospel of Mark and even sort of remembering back to when we first started it, uh, the writer Mark has been so clear so far in his presentation of Jesus and who he is. He hasn't been uh, in the shadows or, uh, you know, ambivalent. Uh, he, he shows Jesus as the one who has authority, as the one who has power. Jesus makes claims about who he is and what he can do and his identity. So we, we've seen that. And yet as, as, as it becomes more and more clear who Jesus is and more and more influential, uh, we also see more opposition to his mission and even to his identity as itself. Um, and so we could say that as the kingdom of God comes in and through the person of Jesus, so does his opposition. That also comes more and more strongly as the kingdom comes. And, and what we'll see this morning as we look at this uh, passage is that opposition to Jesus comes from very diverse quarters. And so what we're going to do together as a, as a family is we're going to try and understand where, these, uh, where this opposition comes from, but also learn how Jesus handles it. Because I think that as, as you and I go out into the, into the wide world, into our families and our social circles, uh, it is good for us to know how to handle opposition um, rather than just sort of uh, going quiet or, or turning away or just, just you know, not saying anything, the silent treatment. How do we actually deal with uh, people who say, you know, Jesus is this, Jesus is that? So we're going we're gonna to see that together um, as we go through this text. Um, so first of all, we'll look at opposition to, to Jesus. Uh, secondly, then we'll look at the answer that Jesus gives to his opposition. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at two sort of reinforcements, two, two uh, um, uh, encouragements to you as you go out and, and uh, bring the good news and, and occasionally meet this sort of opposition that we're looking at today. All right, so first of all, let's examine the opposition itself. And there's, there's two forms of opposition in this text. 
It's really helpful if you have it in front of you so that we can work through it together. Um, Mark 3, we're going to start together at verse 22. And the first kind of opposition that we see here, we've met them before in some form or other, are the scribes. It says the scribes came down from Jerusalem. We've already met the scribes who were in the house when Jesus healed the man who was, lay, uh, who was lowered down by his friends through the roof. There were scribes. But these are scribes from Jerusalem. Okay, so we've got, we've got the local scribes who are trying to, you know, uh, debate and dialogue with Jesus. Um, evidently, word has got around in, in, the, uh, in the academy. Uh, and so the scholars from Jerusalem, you know, the top of the ladder, if you like, uh, the best of the best, um, are coming down, it says, to the place where Jesus was around Capernaum, where he lived, in the northern aspects of Palestine. And uh, these were professional scholars, these scribes. They knew the law. They were experts in theology. It was their job to study. Can you imagine that? It was their job to study. And they were very direct in their opposition to Jesus. No messing around from the scribes. Um, we can see there in verse 22 the kind of things they were saying. He is possessed by Beelzebul, which would be another name for the devil or Satan himself. And by the prince of demons, another word for Satan, he casts out demons. This was what they were saying. This is the, the nub of what they were um, alleging against Jesus. You see, they, they knew all about Jesus' miracles. Everybody knew about Jesus' miracles. Especially they knew about his exorcisms, where he is able to cast out demons and the demon, you know, from those who are being oppressed and interfered with by demons. Jesus could, Jesus could speak a word and, and, and the demons left. And, and this was widespread knowledge. Everybody knew that Jesus could do this. And he healed the sick and he raised, raised people uh, who couldn't walk. He did all of this. Uh, this was common knowledge. So do you note uh, that some of Jesus' most um, aggressive opponents did not even deny that Jesus did these miracles. Um, it was pointless to deny it happened. It was obvious to everybody. So many people had heard and seen uh, his miracles. So what they were left with instead was to try and smear the reputation of Jesus. Um, they couldn't deny his miracles, but they could try and discredit him. And they could say, uh, try and cast some doubt into the minds of the crowds who were gathering. It, it, it's, it's demonic what he's doing. It, it's, it's of the evil one. That's where he gets his power from. That's, that's the sort of thing that they were saying about Jesus. Uh, the idea was to try and make the crowds afraid of him, that he wasn't a good man from God, he was an evil man from Satan. That's how he gets his power. That's what the, the scribes were trying to impress. You can see in verse 30, for they were saying, another sort of summary, he has an unclean spirit. Uh, you know, this man, Jesus, they were saying, he's full of devil power, full of voodoo. Not the Holy Spirit, an unclean spirit, an unholy spirit. That's how he gets away with all of this. That's the sort of thing the scribes were saying. See, when it comes to opposition, this is the kind of thing you'll notice uh, when people can't deny the evidence that's in front of them. Um, they can't deny what's obvious and clear, and so what they're reduced to is attacking the character of the person. If we can't get the person's message or their debate or whatever, we can attack the person. Um, in, in, in classic logic, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's called ad hominem, the ad hominem attack against the man. You know, we can't... We can't debate with you, we can't overcome you, but we can attack you. And so what they do is they try and, and say, well, you know, um, even if it's a very sort of far-fetched uh, example or a far-fetched um, explanation, uh, they're trying to cast doubt into the minds of Jesus' followers and, and introduce a few conspiracy theories, if that, 
to try and, and, and uh, reduce his influence. Don't forget, these were the, the top theologians, the thinkers of, of the, 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 the Israelite religion, the Jewish religion. And so their opinion came with a considerable amount of weight. They were influencers, we could say. They had a certain sort of authority that came from their learnedness. And so when they turn up and say, Jesus is full of devil magic, um, no small amount of people will listen to what they're saying. Uh, but the key thing here with this type of opposition, this direct and aggressive opposition, is that the scribes won't believe Jesus despite all of his stunning miracles and all of his authoritative teaching. They won't believe in him. They don't want to believe in him. And it's just incredible, isn't it? Because often we think, I, I often think, if we could just do a few miracles here, then suddenly half of East Belfast will be here next Sunday. If we could just start you know, uh, raising, raising the dead even, one or two, that, that would be enough just to get things going. And that, that would indeed, I'm sure, attract some crowds. But it's just incredible for me to, to read this and think that even with the most wonderful miracles happening in front of them, they will not believe in Jesus. And it goes to show for these individuals, this type of opposition, there is something deeper than just evidence. It's something they just don't want to accept. So that's the first type of opposition. We'll return to those a little later. But then there's the second type of opposition that comes from a very different quarter. And it comes from Jesus' family. And I don't know if you picked up as Nicole was reading, but, but uh, mentions of Jesus' family kind of bookends this section about Jesus and the scribes. So top and bottom. And uh, this is something that Mark does in, in his gospel account occasionally to draw attention to this central theme. He, he tells a story within a story. And, and we'll see this as we go on through, through the, the study overall. Um, but here we see it. And, and so bookending this opposition from the scribes is opposition from Jesus' own family. Uh, what, what are we talking about? Well, in verse 20, it seems to be that Jesus went home and possibly he was still living at home, you know, with his wider extended family. Um, and it says here that the crowds gathered again. And, and so there, there the crowds are. They just follow him everywhere. They're clamoring for more of Jesus. They're hungry for him. And it says in verse 21 then, uh, when his family heard it, you know, Jesus was so busy he couldn't even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. But they were saying, he's out of his mind. It's crazy. They went to seize him, you know, to, to grab him, to pull him out of whatever he was doing, because he obviously doesn't get it. He needs to eat, he needs to rest, he needs to come away from that for a bit. This word seize in the original Greek, com, com, Greek conveys this idea of, of strength or superiority. Jesus' family in seizing him were, 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 were acting as his superior, as stronger than him, as greater than him in, in some respects. They thought they knew better. They thought they were helping Jesus. And yet, as we shall see, they completely misunderstood who he is and what he was doing. And, and at the other bookend of, of this story, in verse 31 through to verse 35, Jesus was busy ministering and sort of clashing with the scribes. And, and, and it says that his mother, Jesus' mother and brothers, came. And there they were standing. Where were they? In verse 31, they were standing outside external, right, uh, removed from the action. There was, there was Jesus in that house, 
ministering to his people, to the people, teaching them, healing them. Kingdom work, we could say. And these were hungry people, and uh, physically hungry probably, but spiritually hungry. And there were Jesus' family outside. Come out, come, come, come out from there, they said. Trying to prevent Jesus from doing kingdom ministry. And so we can see in this sort of sandwich section of Mark's gospel, uh, two, these two forms of opposition, right? And two, two very, very different quarters. Um, we've got the direct, hostile opposition from the scribes. They're ready to pounce on Jesus, ready, ready to take every, every word he said and, and, and go straight in. They're armed with their one-liners. They're armed, ready to mock and to smear him, whatever it takes to destroy him and his character. But then the other form of opposition is much more homely, uh, much more familiar. Jesus' mother and his brothers, much more comfortable, sort of uh, domesticated opposition, you could say. They were, they were demeaning, they were arrogant, although they didn't realize it probably, but they were. They were getting in the way of Jesus' ministry, trying to pull him away. And this is important for us to understand as a church at this, at this stage here. Um, and particularly for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have to expect opposition. Okay? It comes with a job, it comes with a title. As you are used by Jesus to push back the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of darkness is not going to go quietly. You're going to get opposition. Sometimes it will come in this aggressive, hostile form that we've, you know, similar to that um, in, in fleshed by the, the Pharisees. Um, most likely, though, you'll see people like that, you know, the modern equivalent on TV, uh, on the Nolan show, other similar places. Uh, you'll certainly read about them spewing off on social media, if you, if you indulge in social media. And often these people are presented, they have a, an agenda, they don't want Christianity to be right, they don't want Jesus to be true, they have an axe to grind. Um, they just don't want any of it to be true. And, and sometimes you, you might meet people like this at work. You might find the odd, the odd individual that you come up against. But far more commonly for us, I would say, far more commonly, is the other form of opposition to Jesus. Um, those who are, let's just say, comfortably familiar with Jesus. Just familiar enough. Um, those who have probably known about Jesus because they're exposed to the gospel or the teachings of the Bible, you know, from Sunday school or from church or what have you. Maybe they've grown up within a church environment or gone to BB or GB or one of these sort of things. Far more commonly, we're going to know these type of people who are going to oppose Jesus. They think they know him like Jesus' family did, and yet they are blinded to who Jesus really is, who he truly is. And we'll find this type of opposition in churches because these are people who would call themselves Christians. Or maybe out there in, in the big wide world, they'll go by the name Christian. And yet this kind of opposition that we're talking about here, the second form, um, is, is very, very difficult because these people have been vaccinated against the gospel, to use a modern metaphor. Um, they've been inoculated. They've heard just enough to know deep down how to avoid it. The gospel can't get in. They, they, they don't accept it. it. It can't penetrate their hearts. 
because they've, they've heard just enough to bat it away every time, to deflect it, to harden themselves and form all sorts of defenses against it. And in my view, of these two forms of opposition, the second comfortably familiar opposition, that is far more difficult to deal with than the first. At least you know where the scribes stand, right? You know, at least they're, they're talking to you. These other people think they know Jesus, and in fact, it's difficult to convince them that actually they probably don't. So two types of opposition we see here in, in the Scripture. But it's really interesting then to move then to Jesus' answer. How does he answer these, these two uh, diverse forms of opposition to him? And of course, how we answer those who oppose us and oppose the faith um, depends on the sort of situation we're dealing with. Okay? So you're not going to you know, use a crack, hammer to crack a nut, as they say. If you're, if you're talking to a, you know, maybe a, a granny or someone in your family who you don't think is, is, is a believer in Jesus, you're not going to go in with the, the aggressive uh, counter-punches. Counter um, so it's all going to be different depending on, on, on the situation. But just to be really, I think, really simplified today, just to help us get this moving in our minds, and there, Jesus responds in two ways to these two different groups. He responds to the mind to the first group, and he, you know, he responds to the heart of the second group. And so this can help us if we understand what that means when we come to respond to our opposition. So first of all, then, Jesus responds to the mind. He uses logic. Right? He uses a bit of theology and a bit of philosophy or something like that. And we see that in verses 23 through to 26. And what he says, when, you know, when he hears the, the overall... Uh, teaching of, of the scribes and what they're saying that he's possessed by evil spirits or you know the prince of demons is working through Jesus when he hears that he engages with them and he engages with the mind and he says look hang on a minute hang on a minute you're saying he says to the scribes you're saying that Satan is casting out Satan that the evil one is working against the evil one is that what you're saying and then he goes on he says look how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of evil, if it's, if it's divided against itself, it's going to fall over. It's not going to stand. If one house is divided against the same house, it's not going to stand. It's just going to fall apart. And if Satan is divided up against Satan, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. See what Jesus is doing? He's exposing the, the fault lines in the thinking of his opponents. He's, he's exposing the inconsistencies and he's showing how they don't stack up when you really think about the claims they're making, no matter how aggressive and how direct they are. The next thing Jesus does, then he's exposed their fault lines, the inconsistency. Second thing he does then is he, he provides a far more reasonable explanation as to what's going on, a far more reasonable interpretation. Uh, something that's far more plausible. He says in verse 27, he uses a, a parable. He says, look, this isn't Satan rising up against Satan. This is the work of someone stronger. Someone who, is, who, is, who has gone in to plunder that strong man. That, that's what you're seeing here. This isn't Satan against Satan. My ministry, he says, in effect, is plundering the strong man. What you see me do when I uh, heal the sick and when I uh, raise the, 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 the lame and when I uh, cast out demons, what I'm doing is I'm raiding the kingdom of darkness. I'm raiding the kingdom of Satan. I'm getting into his house. I've bound him up. I've overcome him. 
I have authority over him, and therefore I can speak, and the demons will flee, and the lame are healed. That's what's going on. He gives a far more reasonable and plausible explanation of what's happening here. So he exposes their inconsistencies, gives a far more reasonable uh, uh, explanation, and thirdly and finally then, he goes on the offensive. He presents truth claims in no uncertain terms in 28 and 29. He says, look, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus was saying, look, this is the power of the Holy Spirit in me. That's how I can cast out. That's how I have authority. That's how I can push back. Can't you see that? He says to his opposition. But instead, they have been willfully misleading themselves and Jesus' hearers. They have been blinding themselves on purpose. They have preferred an incoherent, irrational, counterintuitive explanation They've hardened themselves despite the signs, despite his teaching, despite their logic. And Jesus says, when you do that, despite all the evidence in front of you, you will never have forgiveness. There is no salvation for you if that's what you do. You don't want salvation. I mean, it really is a dire situation, what Jesus is talking about here. So let's just take a step back for a second. You might think, goodness me, that conversation escalated quickly. Right? Um, it's just a summary, what we're reading here. It's not, it's not like a text message exchange. This is just a summary of the kind of things that, that, that were said on that day. Um, and mo- let's face it, most of our conversations with those who oppose Jesus are not going to be just like that. There might, there might be one or two, but most of our conversations and interactions over the gospel are not going to be just like that. But you, you can sit here and, and think to yourself, goodness me, this is Jesus and how wonderfully he's able to, to respond. But like, I, I could never hold my own end up in a conversation like that. Um, I could never defend the faith so quickly, so deftly, so, so cleverly as Jesus. And you're in good company because we would all struggle, of course, uh, to, to, to respond so brilliantly as Jesus does here. Um, but let me give you, I've got a couple of tips that I've just picked up right, um, from my own experience that I have found helpful. If, if I'm discussing something with somebody who's a, a, clearly opposed to Jesus and the gospel. Tip number one, uh, there's just two. Ask good questions. Ask good questions. So if you find yourself in a slightly hostile situation or someone throws out something to you uh, in the staff coffee room or whatever, ask good questions. Something like this, depending on the circumstances. Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. You might say, where did you learn this? Or you might want to say, um, what, what evidence has led you to this conclusion about Jesus, whatever it is? Or you might just say, look, could you explain a bit more about where you're coming from? These sort of questions are helpful. They're they're good questions. They're open-ended questions. And they're they're, they're to sort of try and tease out someone's hostility and opposition to Jesus, to maybe just to probe a little deeper in in, in where they're coming from. 
Uh, and, and you can start to discover how well-formed their opposition might be. It might just be they've heard a clip on YouTube early that morning and they're just sort of splurging it out again. Um, it might be that this is something that they have been studying for years. Depends on, on um, uh, their, their responses. But listen carefully to the answers. Ask good questions, listen carefully to the answers because asking good questions really just helps to disarm the situation. Um, rather than just sort of going, going at it together and you know, sort of toe-to-toe, -to -toe, asking a good question just disarms, diffuses the situation a little bit. It removes the sting out of the conversation. It provides a bit of space. It just helps you to understand the person a bit better and, and where they're coming from and, and how they've come to that conclusion. To know them better and ultimately to love them well so that when you're responding, you can, you can try and figure out uh, what's going on in their heart. So number one, ask good questions. Second tip that I've picked up is uh, don't be afraid to speak the truth. Um, good questions are really helpful, but don't be afraid to speak the truth. You know, to present the truth claims of Christianity. You don't need to do it all at once. All right? You don't need to do it in a preachy way. Uh, but certainly, if someone says, for example, I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell, or sends everyone to hell, so to speak, you might want to say, well, look, I don't believe in this God either. I believe in a God who gives mercy and kindness to, to his people, for example. Or, or you might, you know, someone might say, well, I, I believe in a God who loves everybody irrespective. And you might say, well, I, I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God who, who hates evil. He hates oppression. He's a God of justice. Yes, he's a God of love, but he's a God of justice too. And we see that in the person of Jesus. You know, you, you can take it. So ask good questions, but don't be afraid to speak the truth, depending on what the situation is. So Jesus speaks to the mind of these uh, opponents. Uh, but secondly, then, we see Jesus, when he's re responding to his family, he speaks to the heart. Don't forget, his family uh, knew him from, from very early on, obviously, from birth, for his mother. Um, wider uh, family members as well, probably a part of this little group here. They are very familiar with Jesus. And, and don't forget, in verses 31 and 32, we've seen this. There they are outside the, the, the place of action, calling to him, calling to Jesus. Come out to us, Jesus. You know, come, come and behave as we think you should be. Come, come and do what we want you to do, Jesus. Behave as we see fit. Come and conform to our agenda. This is the kind of thing that the family are saying to Jesus. Uh, but yet to that kind of opposition, Jesus doesn't give them a bunch of logic. Neither does he give them some law or some theology or some philosophy. He appeals to their heart. Because he knew that that's what his family needed, this kind of opposition. Appeals to the heart. He says in verse 34, well, he looked at those around him when he heard that his family wanted him out. He looked at those around him, those, those gathered, listening, hanging on every word, um, uh, just absorbed by his teaching, loving Jesus. And, and he looked and he said, these are my mother and my brothers, not those out there, these people here. For, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, sorry, my brother and sister and mother. See, he's, he's appealing to the heart. He's, he's talking about relationship. 
it's, in some ways, it goes, it goes deeper than logic. It goes beyond logic. It goes to the heart. In fact, for the family and, and uh, those who, who resemble them in our own experience, logic and, and theology and debate might not work for them. Because the chances are they know it already. They know the basics. They know the stories. Those who are comfortably, comfortably familiar with Jesus need to be challenged uh, on an emotional or a relational level, a heart level. Need to understand what it is to do God's will. Uh, they need to be challenged about loving God, living to please him. That's how you come into relationship with Jesus, not because you happen to know him vaguely. That's how you relate to me, says Jesus. It's not just about casually knowing him. Just to be clear, by the way, Jesus loved his family, his, his flesh and blood. We see even from the cross in John's gospel, Jesus is concerned for the welfare of his mother, who most likely was a widow by that stage of her life. And he committed her to the care of the apostle John. That's how much he loved his mother, that even from the place of crucifixion, he is worried, uh, he, he wants her to be cared for. Likewise, his half-brother, James, uh, not James the Apostle, but James the half-brother of Jesus, became the leader of the Jerusalem church. We saw last week how he was also described in the Bible as one of the apostles, as an apostle himself. Jesus loved his family. They all occupied a significant place in the kingdom in the future. But here and now, we see his family opposing Jesus, seeking to block his mission because they just don't understand his identity uh, or his calling. And as we've been thinking, these are the kind of people that fill the pews of churches up and down the country. They, they frequent membership lists in our churches. They nod in agreement to the doctrines of the church. They've become comfortable hearing the teachings of the Bible. They've become familiar with the doctrines. But just to be clear, folks, I know you know this, but being familiar with Jesus is not the same as having a saving relationship with Jesus. As we can see in this passage here. And, and you, see this, you see this manifested in churches when you ask people to serve, maybe you expect them to behave in a certain way, you lead them to respond to the claims of the gospel with radical and passionate faith for the cause of Christ when you teach them the glorious gospels, when you do all that, and yet you see no sign, no fruit in their hearts that they understand. No evidence that their hearts are won by the love of Jesus and what he's done for them. They just sit there cold, stony. No interest in hungering after him. No sense of sacrifice. None of that. Just too familiar too domesticated, too cozy. If anything, they have Jesus in their service. You work for me, not the other way around, just like Jesus' family here. These people, as we've been thinking, need their hearts changed. They need to be melted, enlarged. They don't need more facts. They don't just need to hear another good sermon, although sermons are great. But they need to have their hearts stirred, their affections grown, they understand the loveliness of Jesus in worship and in prayer. 
Now, look, I know it's an oversimplification, right? We've just thought about how Jesus appeals to the, the mind and how he appeals to the heart. The reality is, folks, when it comes to us responding to opposition and, and, and bringing the good news, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of both, right? Uh, they do work together, of course. But it's not one or the other. Because truth without heart change just produces Pharisees. Right? Heart change without truth just produces baseless, mystical, spiritual people. The gospel brings us both. It feeds our minds. It enlarges our hearts. And there's a whole bunch of resources I don't have with me, so there's no good to you right now. Uh, but I will put them out online somehow just to com commend to you. A couple of books I've read. Um, there's one particular book that I've recommended before. It's called Tactics. It's by a guy called Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L. K-O-U-K-L, so you spell it. Um, and he just takes you through a very, very simple and disarming way um, of, of, of engaging with those who are outside the faith in a sort of non-confrontational set of questions, which he calls the Columbo technique, uh, from the, the TV detective called Columbo. And uh, so if you, if you know Columbo, um, awesome. If you don't, you're probably too young. Uh, but, but from that, he's developed uh, like a very simple apologetic technique. Um, so I'll, I'll put that on, online and we can uh, share that later. So we've seen the two types of opposition in this text. Uh, we've seen how Jesus answers that opposition. And finally, then, I just want to give you uh, a couple of reinforcements to really strengthen you as you go out on mission for Jesus. But, uh, because the, the call uh, that we have to present the good news is daunting, right? It can be daunting. It can be scary, especially in this sort of hostile environment uh, that we see out there. But it is our calling as a church. Uh, the Bible teaches, teaches us that we must contend for the faith uh, delivered to the saints, it's our role as part of our ministry to contend for the faith, to show the truth of the gospel. And so it's important for us as believers to arm ourselves and equip ourselves with ways that we can do that. They're going to just serve well and, and, and glorify Jesus. Let's face it, um, we've all fluffed this up uh, at one point or another, uh, maybe some more than others. If you've had a go, God bless you. Well done uh, for stepping out, even if it didn't work in the way that you thought, you didn't have your sort of Jesus moment where everybody just sort of uh, was silenced by your awesome logic and uh, just completely undone and what must I do to be saved? That's what we dream of, right? We pray for that. Uh, but, but often that's not how our conversations go. But if you've had a go, God bless you. Keep going. If you haven't had a go, may this text encourage you and inspire you to, to be more vocal and open and listening uh, about your faith. But here's two reinforcements um, two encouragements I want to give you to fortify you. Number one, we can see here the power of the gospel. May that fortify you. The gospel message that you have, uh, that you are learning and, and, and feeding on and is doing work in you, it is powerful, right? It is powerful. It says in verse 28, I truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and in whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins are forgiven. That the message of the gospel is powerful. In the death of Jesus, in the power of his cross, there is forgiveness for, for every kind of sin. Uh, we, we, we refer, well, theologians, I say we, what am I? Theologians refer to the sufficiency of the cross, right? Everything we need is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The power of the gospel is there. It is sufficient to, 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 to forgive every sin. Because Jesus did so much on the cross, he forgave all sins. Murderers are forgiven by Jesus. You know that? Cheats are forgiven by Jesus. Gossips are forgiven by Jesus. Thieves are forgiven by Jesus. Racists are forgiven by Jesus. Abusers are forgiven by Jesus. Amazing. The greedy are forgiven by Jesus. The arrogant are forgiven by Jesus. The haters, the hypocrites, the loveless, the selfish, the liars are all forgiven by Jesus. Even those who have withheld love when they should have given it, withheld grace when they should have given it, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. That's the power of the gospel. But the only one who does not get forgiveness, listen to me carefully, the only one who does not get forgiveness is the one who does not turn to Jesus to receive it. To the one who, who prefers to just keep on thinking the wrong things about Jesus, all the, that person does not get forgiveness. The one who is resolved to misunderstand everything that Jesus says, that person does not get forgiveness. The one who confuses darkness with light does not get forgiveness. The one who mixes truth with error does not get forgiveness. That, according to the scripture, is the unforgivable sin. The person doesn't want forgiveness, doesn't want grace. You're not going to get it. Jesus won't forgive you if you don't want it. The great old line from a, a hymn writer called Fanny Crosby, she writes this, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That moment you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That's the power of the gospel. That's the message that you have for the hurting and, and broken and sinful and messed up world out there. It's powerful because Jesus is powerful. It works on you, it works on your family, or the people you mix with in your, in your career, whatever that may be, your friends. It's the power of the gospel. Second encouragement I want to bring you, the power of the kingdom. You've got the power of the gospel connected to that very closely is the power of the kingdom. Jesus has just been saying in this text, I have overcome the strong man. All right? I have defeated Satan. I have authority over him. That's how I can get away with this stuff. That's how I have the ability to cast him out. And we see that as the gospel winds on. We see that ultimately provided for and demonstrated for by the cross of Jesus, overcoming sin and death and the devil and rising again on the third day. That's how Jesus is able to plunder the house. That's why people are, are saved. He plucks them from the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of light. That's how people are healed. That's how demons are cast out. It's the power of the kingdom. And last week when we were, we were looking at the, the, the 12 apostles, chapter 3, and we saw in verse 14 and 15 that Jesus, remember, sends them out and he gives them authority. He says, go and proclaim my word, the good news, and, and go with my power to go and uh, cast out demons. And we started to think how that also, through them and through the church, is given to us as kingdom people. 
So if you feel that you're sat on the losing side of an argument, or that you've messed up, or that you have been unable to reach that person that you love and care for with the gospel, then please remember the power of the kingdom is upon you. It's in you. You have been gifted and wired up to serve in the kingdom in different ways, to show the kingdom through your words and through your deeds, through powerful signs and through, through your witness. Demonstrating the reign of Jesus in your life. This is yours. This is yours. And over the next few weeks and coming into the summer, we're going we're to think more about how that works for us specifically. How do we exercise that kingdom authority and that power um, as a community on mission? Power of the gospel, power of the kingdom. May that enforce your heart as you go out. No weapon formed against us shall stand says the prophet. In Jesus' name and by his blood, we have the victory. Amen? Amen. Amen.